Welcome to episode 15 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. If you think you know somebody who'd be interested in getting involved with this, share the episode with them. Tag them on social media, send them an email with the link, or just tell them about it the next time you talk. You can see all of the shows by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. I'd like to share our resource for the week, the Independence Fund. The Independence Fund is committed to empowering our nation's catastrophically wounded, injured, or ill veterans to overcome physical, mental, and emotional wounds incurred in the line of duty. They're dedicated to improving the lives of both our veterans and their families, and you can find out more about them at independencefund.org. Thanks again for everybody joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. We'd also like you to join our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. One of the things that has become increasingly obvious is that we need to combine the efforts from both clinical and non-clinical perspectives, as well as include elements of peer support in addressing suicide of the military affiliated population. Our guest today is going to talk about a program that does exactly that. Shauna? Sarah Verardo is the executive director of the Independence Fund. Sarah is what I call a warrior wife, someone who has her own strength that matches and complements the strength of the warrior she's married to. She's a warrior in her own way. Sarah sees the pain of warriors and it moves her to action. She appreciates that there are different kinds of love and that the bond of those who serve is special, unique, and potentially life-saving. We're pleased to host her today on Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. Yes, and I mentioned in the show, but uh, Sarah is not only a caregiver herself for her husband, she's not only a supporter for other caregivers in her network, but also through her organization, supports caregivers throughout the nation. So I really appreciate the opportunity to highlight the work that she's doing, and we'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. This is something that you have really focused on. It's personal for you, obviously, but mm -hmm. what do you see as working when it comes to preventing suicide in service members, veterans, and their families? That's a really great question, and I think we all know, anyone listening to this and, and everyone that you interface with through the incredible work you continue to do, we know the problem. And we know these broad-based solutions. And so at the Independence Fund and with our newest program, we really tried to hone in on what could be effective. And of course, I took very personal experience and sitting at too many funerals for my husband's brothers and, and saw that there is no bond like those who have served together in combat. And replicating that on the home front for us has been incredibly effective. But it goes back to that level of peer support. And it doesn't have to be people that directly serve together. But I think peer support is among the finest ways that we can really combat this on the home front. You know, I recall one of the last times you talked, and it tends to happen this way with veterans. When you mention somebody that your husband served with, and then automatically the thought goes to, is he dead or did he die or right. is it a suicide? Mm -hmm. And and so on the negative aspect, the you know, the peer-to-peer -peer were were impacted when it happens, but then the peer support also supports it so that it keeps it from happening. Absolutely. 
And, you know, you know, and I've been blessed to be with you to share my story before, but my husband was so proud to be a paratrooper, so proud to be in the 82nd. And I believe that they're the best of the best. They're certainly the best men that I've ever known. But they survived the hells of Afghanistan to come home. And, and many of them, including my husband, of course, with catastrophic, life-changing injuries. And they came home and we started to battle a very invisible enemy on the home front. And it was something completely unexpected because we thought these guys have survived. Some of them have new parts, but the hard part is over. And really it was, it was just beginning. And that was really shocking. I'll, I'll never forget, of course, um, you know, helping my husband stand and salute a fly Drake coffin for the first time when we were at a funeral for a man that he loved. And I didn't realize at the time that that scenario would play over and over again. And so I think it is really effective to rely on that trust that's often through hard situations and deployment and bringing that back together, even if it's 10 or more years later. Well, in your role as a caregiver personally for your husband and as a supporter for other caregivers, again, personally in your network and as a supporter for caregivers at large with the Independence Fund, being a caregiver is a form of peer support, but what you're talking is those that have lived it, boots on ground, swallowed the same dirt. Yes, we need the caregiver support, but in your experience, the veterans need support from other veterans. Absolutely, and, and there's no one who understands that like a fellow veteran, no matter how hard we may try as civilians or even as military spouses. There is no one else who understands what it's like to really be in the suck the way that a fellow veteran would. And it took me a long time to, to get there because, of course, I think as military spouses, we think that we can be the, the healing hands and the listening heart, but really it often has to come from a fellow veteran. And I think working in tandem, we can all do incredible work, but there is no bond like talking to a fellow veteran. Right. It, it, exactly. Right. I mean, it's not all on the caregiver it, because it can't simply all be on the caregiver. And then a fellow veteran, like you said, doesn't have to be somebody that they served with. It can be somebody that served before or after them in the same location, or like you said, in the same country. But the combination of the two is what can really make the difference when it comes to addressing a soldier in crisis. It really is true. What we did at Operation Resiliency is we, I left the funeral of Derek Hill, and that was in September of 2018. And Derek, of course, served with my husband and Bravo Company 2508 in the 82nd Airborne and was just an incredible guy beloved by his brothers. And Derek died by suicide. And everyone was absolutely shocked. He had returned just days earlier from being a contractor in Iraq. And it was, of course, devastating to our community. But what I saw was that these men were still paratroopers in every sense of the word. And they mobilized from across America because there, were, there was crisis among their ranks. And as I left Derek's funeral, and it was interesting, one of the guys said to me, who I love, I said, you know, all right, guys, well, well I'll talk soon. And he essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, but started to say, well, I'll see you guys at the next one. And he didn't right. finish his sentence, but... It, the only time they were gathering really was to send another paratrooper to heaven. And it was devastating to understand that. And so I left and I called Dr. Keita Franklin, who we both know is just a national expert um, on this. And she truly is boots on the ground living this every day. 
and I said, teach me about suicide, teach me about suicide prevention, who dies by suicide and why. And I said, I have a very wild idea. And the Independence Fund had existed in the space of caring for our catastrophically combat wounded by providing a lot of mobility equipment and very tangible support, but we had never been in the realm of suicide prevention, which as you know, I mean, there are tens of thousands of nonprofits and it feels like everyone's in suicide prevention and we did not want to ever reinvent the wheel. But I said to Kita, I said, I really have this wild idea that I want to bring the entire unit back together for a reunion. And to her credit, she insisted that mental health support had to be part of it. And Kita is so laid back and forward leaning and she thinks outside the box and I knew it wouldn't scare the guys off. And she did a really incredible job facilitating that and, and showing us what that could look like in a, in a non-scary way. A lot of veterans were afraid to walk into the VA. A lot of veterans thought walking into the VA would essentially mean losing some freedom and independence that they enjoyed. And it it is an interesting idea. It definitely, there's all kind of reunions going on, right? I was, what, 14 years old when I went to my dad and my uncle to a Vietnam veterans reunion. And my uncle turned to me, he was like, you know, this was our welcome home. This was like 80, 86, maybe, right? You know, and so, but there, there wasn't a lot of mental health professionals there. I could tell you that, right? It was right. definitely, but it was, it was reunion, right? It was, you know, a chance right. to get together and party and, and, you know, and yes, raise a glass and honor and everything else. So there are reunions going on and then there's mental health happening, but it's not often when both of those things come together. I mean, even there's retreats where people will go you know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Wounded Warrior Projects, Project Odyssey, right? Where they bring a number right. of non-connected veterans together. They go out there, they address mental health. But this is actually taking a core group of people that know each other and then implementing mental health into it. Right. And coming up with what it means to let some old battles go, but to also reopen things that have to be examined. And one of the ways that I believe we could probably more effectively get in front of some of these mental health issues, and certainly suicide, is what happens when the unit disbands? What happens when you return from a deployment? Now, um, in my husband's case, he was one and done. I mean, he had, he had done time in Korea previously, but Afghanistan was his first combat deployment, and nine months into it, it literally blew up. And he returned home to the United States in a coma, on imminent death status. And he never got to be with his brothers again until years later, really. He spent three years recovering at Walter Reed and then Bansi. But that to be ripped apart from your unit, these people that are your family and in some ways are closer than your family, was really traumatizing. And I saw that among all of the guys that he served with. They had sent 24 men home as casualties. And in speaking to those families, I think that ripping that bond apart so quickly without any type of closure provided some really long lasting issues. You know, that's uh, having been through, you know, the deployments and going there as a unit and coming back as a unit. But you're right, in the military, people don't really consider that because if you are catastrophically injured in theater, you are taken out of theater. You go into a rear detachment, which those people don't right. know you. They didn't deploy right. for whatever reason, so you have a certain attitude towards them, maybe, right? And, and yeah. so you, you feel separated mm -hmm. and then, you know, physically separated, but also emotionally separated. And you're right, that can be as devastating. You know, we talk about what causes suicide. 
beyond just the giving your stuff away, but you know, the, the social determinants of health and, and especially if we take a veteran out of the combat zone, we isolate them, which we know that that is one of the precursors for despair, which leads to suicide. It does. And that loss of mission. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when Mike woke up from his coma, our high school friend, Sean Tilbane was with him and Mike was distraught, like trying to rip out his, his tubing and everything. And he, all he cared about was that the Taliban had taken him out of the fight. And that loss of mission, loss of team was devastating for him. And although he's really declined significantly in recent years, of course, and his TBI is far more pronounced than it was originally, I think that loss of mission, loss of team is something that continues to haunt him. And I've seen that play out over and over again with our other veterans. You know, what is the motivating factor to get well? What is the motivating factor to recover returning to your unit? And when that's not possible, it's devastating. I don't wonder if that's not one of the gaps that we're experiencing is that would be an upstream intervention in that not, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and yes, if someone is catastrophically wounded, we can't keep them in theater, but understanding yeah. that when, when they do go back, we need to get them connected with people again as soon as possible in order to avoid that extended separation. Absolutely. For us and for his recovery, because so many of the men that he served with also suffered catastrophic injuries, I think that's been bonding to say the least. They all recovered together at Walter Reed for quite some time. Mike was at Walter Reed initially, but because he was also very badly burned and his burns were not healing, he was sent to Bamsey. And that was very isolating for him because the rest of his unit, those that had survived and were recovering, were all together at Walter Reed. Walter Reed in 2010 ended up creating an entire wing and unit for 2508 because they were so hard hit. So I think that that isolation is certainly a tremendous issue that we've seen over and over again. And what's really neat about Operation Resiliency. So our pilot program kicked off in April of 2019, and we, we piloted it with my husband's unit, so BCO 2508, but we've gone on to have three other super successful reunions, and as much as the BCO guys have my heart forever, and they know this, the other reunions were just as impactful, if not more impactful, because I think we've gotten better every single time. Keita's incredible. She continues to lead our mental health curriculum, and the execution of it and this does an absolutely unmatched job of what that looks like and how to break down those walls and barriers and get people talking to each other even about the hard stuff so with Dito, we reunited them nine years after they got back from Afghanistan and for some of them it was very difficult to walk through the doors that day to see grown men crying and hugging and kissing each other was such a moving experience but we've seen that replicate itself over and over again we just had the honor in um, the beginning of February, we reunited the men of Charlie Company 2325, and they had not been together since 17 years earlier in Iraq. And it was so impactful to see the bonds that immediately came back together, how everybody falls back into that, to their military rank, and they, they worked so wonderfully as a unit. 
And so, and, and that's, it's great to hear. I mean, obviously it's, you know, for, for an old paratrooper, it's, it's heartwarming. That's one of the things when I was in the 82nd, you have all American week and you have all the old paratroopers from literally world war two coming back together. And, and they, they have this common bond and, and that's definitely something that it feels good. Right. But when it comes to them addressing mental health concerns, you know, uh, Dr. Franklin has this mental health curriculum. What kind of results or, or maybe what kind of anecdotes can you share related to beyond just hugging a neck, but really getting to yeah. some deep down stuff? Well, it's, it's really interesting because VA, since they've been our partner on this, they have absolutely led the charge on ensuring that we have data and it's very data driven. So of course we do surveys during the actual events and during the weekend, but there's also follow-up surveys afterwards. And what I would tell you is one of the, I guess the third unit that we were with, which was Bravo Company 2504, they were also a really special unit. And at the end, one of the men handed a note to someone on our program team. And she does such an excellent job of really shepherding them through the weekend. And he felt like he could trust her and confide in her, but he's allowed us to share this note. And I'll, I'll briefly read it to you because it's about his experience being with his brothers at Operation Resiliency. And he wrote the last 10 months, 100% amount the VA awarded me for PTSD, minimum 10 times a week that I felt overwhelmed with grief over my army career, minimum three times a week where I found myself in parking lots with a gun in my lap. A hundred plus times, I've loaded and unloaded that gun with the same bullet. One time, I put it next to my head and pulled the trigger and realized I didn't wrap the slide. Zero percent chance it will happen again after this retreat. One hundred percent how I'm feeling after seeing my best friend. Wow. And, yeah. and, and that more than anything else, right? I mean, lives... You know, and, and we don't want to be melodramatic, but that right. is one life that is being saved. That is a a saved life. You know, mm-hmm. every day we lose veterans mm-hmm. and it's and it's a national tragedy, but we're also not focusing on those veterans that we save, like right. that paratrooper you were just talking about. Right. And when we started this, the, the retreats are relatively small compared to of course, the volume of veterans that I know we all collectively in our community want to save. And I understand that. And some people did say to me, and even corporations that we approached about supporting this initiative said, well, you're only helping 100 people at a time. Those are 100 lives. And to be able to make a difference in the lives of any veteran, because I believe it all really starts with one, you make a difference in the life of one veteran, you save one life. That's worth everything. But to be able to impact 100 at a time, you know, our retreat size is typically 75 to 100 of them come from a typical infantry company is really special and important. And they pledge to each other before leaving that they have phone rosters, they have phone trees, they have a plan of action if someone is struggling and that they remain in contact. So even anecdotally, what we've seen that they can do on their own has been really exceptional. And also, it's been so great to see a lot of these people who are, you know, battle-hardened and never wanted to walk into a VA and never wanted to say there was a problem, say, I'm not okay, and that's okay, or reach out to us for resources afterwards. Some of them have entered intensive inpatient treatments after Operation Resiliency because 
they want to live. They want to be with each other for long, happy, healthy lives. And that's been so incredible to see. Is it because this has gone on long enough, perhaps? I mean, again, you were on the old podcast and and I started having more Mm -hmm. conversations as we got closer to 2020 where people were tired Mm -hmm. of what do we do about suicide, tired of talking about it, what do we do, what's the solution, which is how we generated this project. Is it that it's been 10 years, uh, 15 years, 17 years, like one of the other units that that some of them are just saying it's just gone on too long? I'm sure that's part of it. But what I've realized in my own house and in the veterans that I'm just so blessed to hold close is that it doesn't matter how long it's been since they were in combat together. For many of them, it was yesterday, even in their minds. And one of the things I shared at our inaugural Operation Resiliency is that probably four or five years post-injury, my husband was having surgery and, and you know he's had at this point about 120 surgeries this was several years back and after surgery they brought me back because he has a very hard time coming out of anesthesia and he was he was yelling and he was very upset and I thought he was calling for the doctor so I went and I found the doctor who had performed the surgery who happened to actually be a navy doctor at the time and I said someone needs to go help him and he's very agitated and he's yelling for the doctor and the doctor said ma'am He's not yelling for me. He's yelling for Doc, who was his medic, uh, Doc Testa, who really saved his life. And I realized that no matter how many blessings we have here, no matter how good life is, and no matter where he is, for many of them, Afghanistan or Iraq will always be right there. And that's true for our Vietnam heroes as well. I mean, it doesn't matter how many decades go by. They often left pieces of themselves there, both emotionally and physically. And it's the honor of our lifetime to try to heal them, but it's also something that every single American should be working towards. No, I agree. And even this, you know, thinking about, even if it's only 100 at a time, but even if 50% of those then go on to impact even two lives, this can be exponential. Like you said, it's okay to not be okay and that's okay. And I got help and you can too, which is really the, the beauty of, of peer support. Well, just having a heart of service. One of the coolest things we saw come out of this was a desire for these veterans to engage in their communities, which was so unexpected. Of course, you know, we, we go in laser focused on, we need to prevent veteran suicide. We need to stabilize them, well, which I believe we, we've done a great job of doing. And um, really the VA is owed a lot of credit on that. Of course, what was really rewarding to see was that in addition to preventing veteran suicide, we were able to see these veterans come out and want to be part of a mission greater than themselves. And they all have come to us and said, can I volunteer at the Independence Fund? Or can you help me find a volunteer opportunity in my community? And it's improved in marriages. I mean, we've heard from some of the spouses that, you know, they may not have been together at the time of deployment or during the veterans military service. And we've been able to hear how they're a better dad, they're a better husband. They're a better member of their community. And that has been amazing to watch them unfold. So is that maybe an action step of uh, heal and then pay it forward? I believe it is. And I, I think it goes back to that being part of a team again. And there are these incredible resources for veterans to connect with in their communities, be it adaptive sports or regular sports or mentoring 
or engaging in volunteering at the VA. And we use a lot of those resources to help beyond what our three-day retreat looks like because they do life-changing work and they do really hard work. Of course, they have fun being all together again and they relive those old memories and great times, but they also do really hard work during that weekend. And so we want to make sure that the healing doesn't end at that weekend. And on the final day of each Operation Resiliency Retreat, we have a resource there. And that includes everything from accessing VA and benefits to engaging with wonderful nonprofits across the country and then local to their community. That's amazing. And you know, I'm a huge fan of the work that you're doing personally as a, again, a personal caregiver caring for, for those that are in your immediate network also for the work with the Independence Fund, and then just your, your work nationally. I, I appreciate yeah, you and your work, you. and, and I really thank you for coming on the show today. Well, it was such a blessing, and what you continue to do by highlighting these important issues, I know it's deeply personal to you. I know that you won't rest until we see really great progress in this area, and I'm so grateful for the, the light that you continue to shed on all of these issues. So thank you so much for having me. I think as Sarah had mentioned on the show, she and I had had a conversation on the Headspace and Timing podcast, but I thought that what they're doing is really important and should really be highlighted on this show where we're focusing on suicide in the military population. Definitely. So the first point that I pulled out involves a line of work that I've been developing in my writing, which is what our moral injuries are and how they shape us. For example, moral injury can occur in the flash of a millisecond in the context of a decision that haunts us for decades. But on the other hand, it doesn't require a discrete event to create a moral injury. So there are these fundamental paradoxes about the nature of moral injury that are not currently captured in our understanding. Another paradox is that moral injuries are not just related to what we do and don't do. In other words, moral injuries are not always the result of our actions, or our inability to take action. And circumstances can conspire to breed moral injuries that limit our potential. Just surviving when others don't shifts the entire moral framework for the rest of our lives. Consider the case of an Iraq war veteran who's been hit by a roadside bomb and suddenly evacuated from the combat zone. In his head, he may know that he's too injured to get back in the action. But still, he yearns to be back in Iraq. The initial survivor guilt that he felt in being pulled out of danger with his life intact while others are still vulnerable to enemy bombs can harden over time into an all-consuming feeling of shame that he's unworthy or he may feel like a burden who does not deserve to be out of danger when his brothers and sisters are still in harm's way. There's also a deep attachment wound that we often miss and this is what Sarah is describing here. Being suddenly cut off from people who are family to him becomes something like phantom limb pain that haunts him for the next decade. And this is why bringing the tribe of those who serve together, who would lay their lives down for each other, is absolutely critical. There is no substitute for this. It's less about peer support and closer to something like reattaching a missing limb. That's something that she had brought up that I hadn't considered, honestly, until having the conversation with Sarah 
was when I redeployed from all of my deployments, we went there as a group and we came back as a group, right? There was a period of time where you were able to relax in Kuwait or Manas, but you went there as a group, whereas some of our older veterans, like the Vietnam veterans, didn't experience that. And I hadn't considered how catastrophically wounded, ill, and injured veterans that were evacuated from theater had much the same experience as an individual augmentee leaving Vietnam by themselves. That's right. It's that sudden cutoff of the life you know. And as you know, Dwayne, you know, I've been doing healing reunions with groups of veterans that served together for many years, certainly not at scale in the way that Operation Resiliency is able to do for larger groups of veterans. As you and Sarah discussed, these opportunities to reconnect during reunions can be about much more than a hug around the neck. They can be deeply healing for the warriors that attend. Bringing the tribe together and shepherding them through a process of healing fills a critical gap. Sarah said something that really stuck with me hours after I listened to her interview, and it was this. It doesn't matter how long it's been for many of them. Being in Iraq feels like it just happened yesterday. This is so true. I've heard the same thing and variants of it from veteran patients serving in wars spanning World War II through the Vietnam War to the wars of today. One of the things that combat does is it creates a split from the world as it used to be. One goes into almost another world, an alternate reality that has different rules. What's happening right now, this pandemic threat, is actually creating conditions that are similar to the rules of this other world, the world that is always present in the minds of many of our veterans, even if one has not lived in that world for 5, 10, 20 years or more. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this as well, Dwayne. You know, I think we have these experience that there was a time before something happened and a time after something happened, right? You know, I think of my parents' generation, everybody knew where they were at when Kennedy was shot, right? There was this world before Kennedy was shot, and then afterwards, everything changed. 9-11, I think, was a shared experience. Again, people's lives changed generally in the nation before and after, but you're right, individually, veterans have this before combat, after combat, or before yep. Iraq, after Iraq, right? For veterans, we carry around this delineating moment that isn't shared by everyone else. Um, yep. And you're right, I think that the coronavirus is going to be another delineating event before coronavirus and after coronavirus. And just like Vietnam veterans were able to help people shepherd through 9-11, I think okay. you're right that service members are going to be able to shed some light on the feelings of a, a before life and after life and nothing's ever the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have never served. And so, you know, the only value I can bring right now is to take the years I've been listening to veterans who have trusted me and to help us all navigate this based on what I have learned from those who have faced and overcome extreme stressors. It's just really interesting how the two worlds are perhaps collapsing a little bit, but I do think veterans have so much wisdom to share with us right now. Yes, and definitely appreciate the work that you're doing and obviously the work that everyone is doing to address this. The, the work that the Independence Fund is doing it doesn't stop just because of the coronavirus. And I really appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to the show. Make sure to check out the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS15 where you can get the links to things we talked about in this episode, as well as finding them on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. While you're at it, check out the resource for the week, the Independence Fund. 
The Independence Fund is committed to empowering our nation's catastrophically wounded, ill, or injured veterans to overcome physical, mental, and emotional wounds incurred in the line of duty. They're dedicated to improving the lives of both our veterans and their families through their mobility, caregiver, adapted sports, advocacy, and family programs, as well as operation resiliency. The Independence Fund strives to bridge the gap of unmet needs for veterans and their caregivers. You can find more about them at independencefund.org. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.